are now completing this series that was begun back in October, speaking about awakening and revival in our lives. Interesting, I was thinking about that word revival and how it brings different reactions in different people. Typically, often I've heard the word used in this context, we need a revival. And that usually means those other people, they need straightened out, right? Or I have used it, and I've heard it used, and I'm glad we've been careful in this sense not to do it this way, that we've scheduled a revival. Really. I think it's God through his Holy Spirit who schedules those revivals Sometimes at the most unexpected time, but always when we need it the most. We're looking at Psalm 139 today, and particularly the last two verses. As I came across this again and again, the topic of repentance kept coming back. As though somehow that's something that's needed in my own life. And so I want to share some of those thoughts today with regard to repentance, specifically in the fact that we're all invited in one way or another along the path of repentance. I want to think of it in that way today, as though it were a path. Now, sometimes some of us have been on this path before, Some of us are still looking for it. And some, we're on it now. I think of it in this way. My experience with paths or trails has been in in actually camping experiences. And I I recall it was either last summer or the summer before um, we were camping in the Boundary Waters. It's a wilderness area. And typically when you're on a trail, especially around here or something, there's a trailhead and a mark and so forth. And where we camp and where we go, there are no markings whatsoever. Okay, there's, there's, there's nothing. You, you have your map and your compass and the lay of the land. And you know that makes for, um, well, I wouldn't say exactly lost, you know. Uh, we're just you know, temporarily misplaced sometimes. And I remember a couple of summers ago, um, we were looking for this particular trail. When, when you get to the end of the lake, it's called a portage. And you look for a portage trail. And we came to the end of the lake, and we, thought, we found what we thought was the portage trail. It was kind of a trail through the trees, got out of our canoes. And I started up the trail and I looked down and saw shoe prints. Good sign. Uh, somebody's been up this trail before and got about 50 yards in the woods. And it just kind of disappeared. And all these little uh, animal trails go off in different directions. I'm realizing around me, it's all swamp. That was not the portage trail. I was on the wrong one. Backtracked, came all the way back to where we started. Uh, Got in the canoes, went a little bit further up the lake. And sure enough, there it was, the path. Very recognizable. Uh, The first one fooled us, and it must have fooled somebody else too because I saw the footprints going up the trail. But there we were. We found the right path. And it was well-worn, easily seen, 
but we had to get on that right path or we would end up in that swamp. None of us wanted to go. Think of the path of repentance in that way. And I want us to think that way today as it being a path. It is both an event, we'll talk about that in a moment, and it is a path. It's progressive. It's a process. Now, you're looking at, again, like I said, Psalm 139. I want to concentrate on the last couple of verses, uh, especially verses 23 and 24. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 139. I'll be referencing the other verses there as well. But today as we talk about repentance, I want to say that walking the path of repentance means a lifestyle of safe vulnerability that allows God to work in my life, the almighty, all-knowing God of the universe, to actively search me, to know me, to test me, to lead me. Find all of those in verses 23 and 24. See, we all choose our depth or level of vulnerability. You ever notice that? We have different defense mechanisms in place. And in some ways, rightly so, because there's a lot of sin in the world. And if there were no defense mechanisms, that sin would constantly hurt us and inflict pain on us. I'm going to talk about a safe vulnerability. Some have developed a lifelong endeavor, a career of sorts, to protecting ourselves against that pain and almost a zero level of vulnerability. But you know what? In the process of doing that, we discover a different pain, the pain of distance. Distancing ourselves from those around us that love us, and most importantly, distancing ourselves from God. And so when we read something, like in Psalm 139, search me, Oh God, there undoubtedly is going to be some type of reaction on our part because of that need that we perceive to be when we're vulnerable. This is a psalm that was either compiled by or perhaps actually written by David himself. It's a very personal psalm, a very personal prayer. I'm going to look carefully through verses 23 and 24 first. Uh, Verses 23, And search me, O God, and know my heart. This is a prayer. It's a very diligent, difficult probing. Now, if you recall, if you heard it read before, if you know the verse, uh, Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, You have searched me and known me. And then in verse 23, he says, Search me and know me. And you think, Okay, which is it? Search me or hey, you have searched me? Yes. Uh, it's both. Because uh, you see what it is. God knows what's there, but my willingness to allow that searching means I realize it's needed and I submit myself to his active work. That's a very common word. In wisdom literature especially, it's often a person's character or his feelings are being probed. Cross-reference to this would be Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And you think about it. Does anyone else have this ability? 
to search in that way? Absolutely not. This is God himself. David's prayer is that God would search him. Search me and know my heart. Here is another very common word, again, used in in the Old Testament. In fact, it's used several times in just this psalm. Know. Know my heart. How well? If you call in in the book of Jeremiah, when when God is introducing to Jeremiah what his task would be, he first had to establish with the guy and the prophet and say, I know you. He says in uh, chapter... 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And again, in this very psalm, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, look at those verses. How well does God know us? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. How well does he know us? My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Can you imagine anyone that knows you that well? Think of the person who knows you the best. It might be a spouse, a parent, son or daughter, brother, sister, friend. Add them all up. They don't know you as well as God knows you. Know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And this, obviously, we have heard this repeated times in Scripture. This means who we are deep inside. Not only who we are, but what we're thinking. And not only who we are and what we're thinking, but why we're thinking that. When you see the word heart, that's what he's talking about. Search me, O God, and know my heart. The next line, try me. This is a word that means to examine or to prove, or to test. It's a process that includes action. Going again to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 27. Man's ways are tested as one tests or purifies metal. Think of it that way. When he says, when you see that word in there, test or try, that's what he's talking about, is a metal is purified. God spoke to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 9. And he's telling Zechariah about the people of Israel. He's telling how he's going to destroy two-thirds of the people of Israel, but he's going to keep a third, the remnant. But not only is he just going to keep the third, this is what he's going to do. I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. When we ask God to try us and test us, that's what we're asking him to do. And we need that. Think of it this way. Suppose you were to get someone to hand you a gift, and it's a box, and it's a piece of jewelry, and it's heavy, and you know it's gold, and you open it up, and there's this misshapen piece of dirt. Well, somewhere in there, there's gold. And you really don't kind of want to hang that on a pendant and put it around your neck. Could you, like, maybe refine it first and make it into a beautiful piece of jewelry? Put that into the furnace. Heat it up. Watch the little wisps of smoke. Pull it out. See what's left. That's the refined gold. That's what we're asking God to do to us. Test me, O God. So far, I'm kind of getting the idea that um, this is this, when we say search me, O God, this is not a passive searching. Okay, it's not exploratory surgery. There's a difference. Something's going to take place here. He says, know my thoughts. 
That word is better translated, or if you were to add something onto it, my disquieting thoughts. I know other translations put the word anxious in there. In Psalm 94, it's translated, my cares. Uh, when the cares of my heart are many. So this psalmist is inviting the searcher to uncover these cares. You, probably a verse that might come to mind is 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all my cares upon him because he cares for me. So know me. Try my thoughts. In verse 24, see if there is any grievous or wicked. The root word means hurtful. It's applied in Scripture to both physical pain and then in this context, emotional sorrow. See, God is asked, uh, the psalmist is asking God to reveal the negative. We don't often do that, especially in this society. We like to affirm, right? That's politically re- correct. Affirm. And that's good. We need that. But this prayer is, show me the bad stuff. Not always a pleasant thing. And then another request, lead me. Now, this leading is, is more than just offering direction or guidance. It's a request for God to go before, uh, showing the way. It's the same word back in verse 10. You see that there, even your hand, even there your hand will guide me or lead me. Same word there. But, but it's not simply God just simply pointing the way and saying, here's where you need to go. It's the difference between standing on the street corner with your three-year-old and saying, okay, when you think you got it, go for it. Or taking him by the hand and leading him across the street. Which would you rather have? That's the difference. When he says, lead me, this is what he's saying. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a wonderful phrase. It means an ancient trail. That's what made me think of, of, of our, our, that illustration of where we were in, in the Boundary Waters. There's a trail there. There's a well-worn trail. Lead me in that trail. You know what that trail is? It's the path of repentance. And we're asking God to lead us in that path. What does this have to do with repentance and awakening then? Well, keep in mind that repentance is both initial, it's an event, and it's also continual. It's a process. Not only that, it's deeply personal, but at the same time takes place in the context of community. And going back to the fact that it's an event, we need to understand that when we talk about repentance, initial repentance happens at salvation. I know that often I have used the term, and others as well, come to faith in Christ as someone who has become saved. True. But there's a very essential component there that sometimes we miss and we don't understand. It's come to faith and repentance in Christ. The two are tied together. Don't miss that. I'm afraid sometimes we too, and my fear is this, that there are people walking around today who think that they have come to faith in Christ simply because they signed off on a decision card and stuck it in their Bible. And when they get to face God in eternity, they can pull that card out and say, look, Sign my card, I'm good to go. There's a lot more to it than that. It's faith and repentance. It's turning from something and turning toward God. That's salvation. And again, my fear is sometimes we think that, you know, I prayed the prayer. Somebody brought me forward and they told me to repeat this prayer. And I said the prayer, I must be saved, right? Is there any change? 
Was there anything that took place in the heart? We can go for years like that. I have a friend who some years ago became very fearful of the concept of hell and didn't want to go there and figured out that I just got to pray this prayer and do this and act like that. I'm good to go. My fear today is to this day, he doesn't understand the full concept of salvation. I just, it was just kind of escape. You know, I'm just going to kind of escape and, and get away from it. There is faith and repentance, and both are absolutely necessary with salvation. It's not simply adding church or Christianity to your resume or your to-do list. Well, if I'm sincere about following this ancient way, this path of repentance, there are three things here. First, I need to recognize who the searcher is. Searcher, capital S. I need to recognize my own need to be searched. And I need to recognize the way the searcher is leading me. First, I need to recognize who the searcher is. And I'll tell you what. You want to find out who that is? Look at Psalm 139. It is one of the most eloquent pieces of literature that describes who the searcher is. In verses 1 through 6, this is the creator of the universe. He knows me. He knows when I sit down, when I rise up. This is the searcher. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verses 7 through 12, not only, and that's, uh, that's his omniscience. He knows everything. Not only that, verses 7 through 12, he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And then he has, then psalmist writes in, we don't quite get this in the English, but the psalmist writes in four directions. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I flee vertically to the deepest depths, to my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, that's to the east, as far east as I can possibly go, possibly go you are there. And if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, to the psalmist that was to the west, you are there. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Not only does he know us well, he is everywhere. This is the searcher we're talking about. And not only that, he's not a distant God. He's intimately involved in my formation. Look at verses 13 through 18. I already read verses 13 through 16, but look at verse 16 again. He formed me. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every single day of your life, if you live to be 80 years old, that's 29,200 days. Every one of those days God saw before you were born. He knows you. He's intimately involved in what we are, who we are, and what we're doing. It's not just location. It's also formation. Well, in verses 19 through 24, compelled to respond. When you think of all of that and you consider who the searcher is, how all-knowing he is, how he knows me deeply, There's a response. Now, I know sometimes, especially as you're reading through in this beautiful psalm, all of a sudden, verses 19 pop out there and kind of startle you, and you think, David, what are you writing here, right? 
But I tell you what, you know what it is? It's a strong repudiation of anything contrary to God's holiness. This is not, he, he wants nothing to do with that. It's a complete abhorrence of those things that violate or oppose God's character. Verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. There is absolutely no secret or hidden attachment to the ungodly or their ways. I fear that sometimes one of the roadblocks on the path to repentance is the fact that we don't hate those things that God hates. We just, we, we kind of, you know, yes, on the outside we'll say that, but we kind of hide it away and in secret. There's something there that we're hanging on to. And David pulls it out in the open and says, I hate him. With God's hatred, I hate them. It's similar to the pledges required by kings of their subjects at that time. May your friends be my friends and your enemies my enemies. This is the searcher. Not just of the Old Testament and of David, but it is the searcher of our hearts and minds as well. Paul writes about this in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. A couple other notes about the searcher and his searching. It follows that the more we know a person, the more opportunity there is for us to be known by them. Okay, think of it in a husband-wife relationship. The better you know them, the better they know one another. Okay, follow me here. If I know God more deeply, I'm going to allow him to search more deeply. If there's somebody that you know and just kind of like have just met and they're, they're kind of asking you like personal questions, you're like, hello, I don't know you that well. Do we do that to God? And you know why? Because we don't know him. And the deeper we go in our knowledge of him, and that means simply spending the time with him, investing time digging deeply into God's word and in prayer, fellowshipping with brothers and sisters, that's getting to know him. And sometimes when we pray this, search me, O God, and know my heart, and there was nothing there. Well, maybe it's because we have not taken the time to get to know him. That's one note about the searcher. Another one is, keep in mind here that it is God who does the searching. I think sometimes we would prefer to do the searching ourselves. How effective is that? (laughs) Which parts are we going to leave out conveniently, right? Has anybody ever gone to the doctor? And before you go to the doctor, you you go online and go on uh, WebMD. That, you can self-diagnose right there. I've got the pain right here. And you go on WebMD and search it. Oh, my goodness, they're going to have to operate and do this and do that and everything. And you go to the doctor, and he's like, what do you need me for? You know? Hey, we don't know. And we want to play WebMD with God. No. He wants to do the searching. Another note is that uh, sometimes God might choose to use what we would call unorthodox methods of searching. In other words, we we have the idea of what we think he ought to do and how he ought to search. Uh, In my quiet time, he'll reveal something to me, and sometimes he does. In my prayer life, yes. And sometimes he uses other people. Get that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And somebody comes along and says, friend... Did you know this about you? <laughs> like, back off. 
but that might be God using that person in our lives, and we need to be aware of that. Well, first we need to know this, recognize who the searcher is, and then secondly, we need to acknowledge and agree and recognize my own need to be searched. Think of it this way. Here's a picture, trying to, trying to get this picture in our heads. Think of your, your life, your body, yourself, as, as a home, as a big house with a lot of rooms. And God in his goodness is taking his light and going through each room and shining his light in each of those rooms. We recognize a need to be searched. There's a lot of rooms that are, are nicely kept and you don't mind him walking into the living room and shining his light around if we keep the living room clean. We go up the attic. We go down to the basement. What's hiding in those corners? Sometimes it's something there that's been there for years and we've forgotten all about. And God will take his light and shine that. And the whole point of this passage is... I'm going to give it away. At the, it's supposed to come to this at the end. But the whole point of this passage, he just doesn't shine the light in there. He does something about it if we let him. Okay? Because, but first we have to be aware of that stuff. And praying for God, asking God to search us, he will do that. And he will find things in some of those dark corners, the little pile of trash that needs to be burned up. And somehow, I also get this picture, it's not, it's not like a harsh glare of a judgmental light. I want us to get that out of our minds. I have a, um, a work light <clears throat> at home. It's one of those halogen lights. Uh, very bright. Uh, it had, a, had one of those like little 100-watt bulbs in it, and it would light up an entire room. And the bulb burnt out. And, and so I went to the hardware store and t- to get a replacement bulb, and I see on the shelf there, it's a 100-watt... 250 watts, oh baby, yes. Grab that thing off the shelf, put it in there, man, that thing will fry eggs now. I mean, it is bright. But that's not the, I don't think that's the kind of brightness that God is talking about here. I think when he searches us, I think he takes a candle. And very personally and carefully, he goes into each corner and he finds things there. Things that we need to allow him to take care of. And in doing that, starts us on the path to repentance. I do think, however, there is still one roadblock that we need to talk about before we talk about the, the next, um, the way the searcher is leading me. And that roadblock is called self-denial. I would have to say, this is probably one of the most powerful roadblocks in a person's life. Because no one can convince us that there's something wrong when there's a strong case of self-denial. I'm okay. You know, I never use that room, so it's okay if, it's, if the door's shut and, and, and God never shines his light in there. It's okay. I've already taken care of it. Or they won't do it. They won't come to me, so I'm not going to go to them. That self-denial is very, very powerful. It must be dissolved as a roadblock if we're to continue on the path of repentance. Well, we said uh, recognize who the searcher is, uh, recognize and acknowledge and agree on my own need to be searched, and then recognize and actually follow the way the searcher is leading me. This is the path of repentance. 
This is what he said earlier, uh, that the way could be translated the ancient path. This is the eternal way. And quite frankly, this is such a way that when we are diligently pursuing this path, death, even death itself, is just simply a doorway, a stream crossing. Not an interruption on the path at all. Well, before we go back to those two verses, there's, there's one important thing to keep in mind in our understanding about repentance. And that is this. Repentance is comprehensive in nature. It involves the mind and the emotions and the will. Got that? It's comprehensive. It involves the mind and the emotions and the will. I fear sometimes we think of repentance and we leave out one of those. If you have just the emotions and the will, it is, I feel bad and I'm going to live differently now. See, we fail to realize or understand who God is in our sin in relation to his holiness. Emotions and will together, it just becomes a good, heartfelt effort. That's all. When the feeling goes away, we don't try so hard anymore. Nor is repentance just the mind and the will without the emotions. That's realizing my sin, who God is, and I'm simply going to change. I'll just list those wrong things and check them off each day. You know what? That's called behavior modification. That's not repentance either. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. See, we can easily all choose to modify our behavior just to make it look good. It's not repentance. Think of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, here are the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I did those. And then Jesus went straight to the heart, give up everything you have and give it to the poor. Couldn't handle that. Thought he was repentant. He checked off all that list, but his heart was not right. Repentance is the mind, emotions, and the will. It's also not the, just the emotions and the mind leaving the will out. See, I understand God's holiness and my sinfulness. I feel terrible that I've let him down. I even tell him I'm sorry. But I'm not real, actually willing to give up the sinful behavior. Get this, repentance is not. Repentance is not repeated confession of repeated sin. Repentance is not repeated confession of repeated sin. I know 1 John 1 9, and we are thankful for that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Repentance is turning from that sin. That's true repentance. We haven't repented if we turn around the next day and jump into the same cesspool that we were cleansed of the day before. When we look at each of these briefly, it involves the mind. The mind, emotions, and the will. It involves the mind. Think of, of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. What took place first? He came to his senses. He was in a pigsty and finally it occurred to him oh i could be somewhere else so repentance does involve the mind think of it also this way the the story of um, peter in luke chapter 5 
when Jesus worked one of his first miracles and told the fishermen, go out, throw your net on the other side, and they pulled up a boatload of fish, Peter saw that miracle, understood, recognized, and his response, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood that. Uh, Keep in mind also, though, there were a lot of other people around, saw the same miracle, didn't have the same response. So it isn't just the mind, but that is a part of it. It's one of those things where we think, well, maybe just I could just pass the quiz. Well, there's a lot more to it than just passing the quiz. It's no excuses. Repentance is, I have sinned, period. Not, I have sinned, but you know how badly they sinned against me. You know what they've done to me. I have sinned, but... No, I have sinned, period. And it's not using those familiar words. Um, I'm struggling with the stronghold. Yes, we do that. But call it what it is. It's sin. Or uh, another one, um, I used poor judgment. We sinned. Call it that. Or I made a mistake. Yeah, that's sin. In essence, it's coming to see my sin from God's point of view, which inevitably, inevitably means a change, a turning from something previously held. It's Repentance involves the mind and the emotions and the will. It involves the emotions. It's a change of feeling. If you were to look at Psalm 51... And take the time to look at it now. But you read through Psalm 51 and read what David wrote. There are strong emotions there. He felt the grief, the pain of his sin. And in 2 Corinthians 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 9, Paul had written a letter to the Corinthian church. Now, this Corinthian church was messed up. We know that. And he had written a letter to them. Previously, we don't have a record of that letter, but he referenced it and says, I I know a lot of those things that I wrote in that letter hurt you, but it was for your good. And the remorse that they felt led them to repentance. But it was the fact that his writing deeply affected the people to the point they felt grief. Repentance involves those feelings. Unfortunately, sometimes we're good at pain relief, aren't we? Uh, There's a whole aisle of it at the drugstore. Uh, And we just want to kind of avoid the pain when God prompts something in our hearts and our lives that would lead us to repentance. We just pop those pills, take that medicine for the pain relief, make it go away. It won't lead us to repentance. See, God created our emotions. Every part of us is to be used for God's glory. Quite frankly, repentance without emotion is like a marriage without love. It's just appearance, just a partnership. It's got to be something real there. And repentance involves those emotions. It involves the mind and emotions, and it involves the will. I know what needs to change. I feel the need to live a life that honors God. I now choose to alter my course, and I want to live that life of obedience and then do it. The prodigal son, when he came to his senses and realized he could be in a better place, didn't sit back down in the same slop and say, boy, I hope someday I get there. He got up and went somewhere. It involves the will. It involves the emotions. It involves the mind. It is comprehensive. 
Repentance is an ongoing process. And it's, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you would think, well, that, if you talk about repentance to somebody else, it's a sign of weakness. You're repenting? <laughs> How bad are you? Or your church is a repentant church? Well, yeah. Hello. We're all sinners. Right? We need that repentance. I think this is something that is common for anyone, whether they are one day in their walk with Christ or ten decades in their walk with Christ. Repentance is the path for all of us. And you look at Psalm 139, you see verses 23 through 24. These are all tied together. They're all part of the same chain. Don't separate them. Search me. Know me. Try me. Lead me. That taking place consistently in the heart that is tender toward God will enable us to remain faithful on the path of of repentance, not being distracted by some other trail leading off in the woods, but knowing that path of repentance. For me, uh, quite frankly, too often I have prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart, and stop there. Don't stop there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me. That means some active work in there. That means he's going to go into some of those corners and burn up some of the garbage that is hidden there. See if there be any wicked way in me, and then lead me. I want to walk that path. I don't want to just sit there in the same slop. I want to get up and go somewhere. I think that leading is so significant because it means that I trust him. I think we as humans sometimes have a hard time with with trust. In fact, when we think about our relationship with God and our repentance before him, we think of it, unfortunately, maybe as a contract. You fill out, God, what you want. I'll take a look over it. I like it. Sign at the bottom, push it back across the table for you, to you. That's not repentance. Repentance is, I take a blank piece of paper, say, God, you fill it out. You fill it out. You put in there what needs to be in there. Let me take that a step further. You take the blank piece of paper, Sign it first before you push it across the table to God. Say, fill that in. I've already signed it. Whatever it is that you want to do, begin your work in me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting is the... Musicians come at this time. I want to invite you, those of you that are thinking and praying, this might be a time where you can pray that to God. And I want to invite our prayer partners down front as well, if you would come at this time as well. If there's something that you would like someone to pray with you about. And this is something, let me tell you as well, we're not asking you to spill your guts to the prayer partners and tell them everything about you and they can pray. If you just go down there and stand there, Someone will pray with you. It's the repentant heart, the path of repentance that we need to be on. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, our prayer, it's a dangerous prayer. It's a prayer of trust. 
We realize and recognize the need in our lives. We recognize who you are. And we trust you as the ultimate searcher of our hearts and our minds. Thank you that we can trust you. We commit ourselves to that path of repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name.